Good to be with you today. One of my favorite authors is David McCullough. Anybody read David's books? I almost want to call them historic novels, but that's not correct, because he writes history as he sees it, as the story of people. When you read a, a David McCullough book, for instance, about John Adams or 1776, you get drawn into real history in a way that reminds you that real life is a whole lot better than the stories we make up. The book we're going to study today is that kind of a book, the book of Esther. It reads like a made-for-TV novel. In fact, as storytelling goes, it's probably the very best in the whole Old Testament. It has suspense, intrigue, betrayal, conspiracy, heroics. One of my hopes is that you'll want to go home and read the rest of it because I'm actually not going to tell you all that happens in the book. I hope to whet your appetite, draw out the big dilemma that's faced, and see what lessons we learn from it. The cast has the king of the world, the dethroned queen, has a man of morals, a man of faith. It has a great villain. But atypically to the day in which it was written, it has a female heroine, an orphan girl who becomes a queen who saves the nation. God chooses this last primary character in the whole Old Testament narrative to be a woman who is a fearsome force for God. It's worth noting that in spite of the incredible male domination in culture that was clearly seen in the Old Testament, it's worth noting that the very last hero in the Old Testament is a woman. And the very first person mentioned in the New Testament is a woman, Mary. I checked this story out because I had, I had read it, and I checked it on Wikipedia, so you know it's true, right? Everything on Wikipedia is true. <laughs> But there supposedly is this group called the Barbie Liberation Organization, the BLO. Have any of you heard about that? Supposedly, they are these cultural interventionists. One of the things they've done is that they've taken off the shelves of toy stores two different talking dolls, talking Barbie and talking G.I. Joe, and changed their voice boxes with each other, and then sneaked them back onto the shelves of these stores. So children were buying these, uh, these dolls, and they'd pull G.I. Joe, and they'd get a very high-pitched voice saying, I hope Billy asked me to the prom. Let's go shopping. And then these girls get out their Barbie and open it, and she goes, hit the dirt hard, hard, hard. Well, that's Esther. The world looked at Esther as a beauty queen. That's how she rose to this. The world saw Esther and saw Barbie. God saw Esther, and he saw a mighty warrior. So what we're going to do today is look at the story itself. Then we're going to just briefly look at it in terms of the meta narrative of the Old Testament, which we've been going through. Then we're going to, of course, look at lessons for us today. Let's just begin by looking at the story. This takes place in between the building of the temple... And then under Nehemiah, the building of the wall to protect Jerusalem, which set the stage for the coming of Christ, the securing of God's plan on the holy mountain. And we'll look at that next week. But there are still Jews scattered throughout the whole world now because of the exile. And this takes place back there, back in what is now the kingdom of Persia. 
And it is a potential catastrophic, apocalyptic event for the people of Israel. So even though it's not happening in Jerusalem, this is absolutely just as important that we understand it. The king is Xerxes. He is the son of Darius the Great. Darius was the last builder of the Persian Empire. He was a visionary. But his son didn't carry that on. And whenever a culture reaches that point where they stop being a great building culture and start just enjoying the fruits of it and entering into an era of entertainment and self-adulation, that's the beginning of the end for any culture. Xerxes oversees the beginning of the end for Persia. And we see that in this story. He was a self-serving party animal who was out for himself. Whereas structures of a great visionary are built to further the good of the nation, under someone like this, a lot of things were being put into the law that were frivolous, vanity laws, you might say. For instance, one law was that no one could come into the king's presence by asking or coming in on their own. The king had to ask for them. What kind of national diplomacy is that? That's not a kingdom builder. That's someone who doesn't want his party spoiled. This was Xerxes. The book of Esther is a good read for our culture because one of the dominant themes is food. Three different sets of feasts that take place. It begins with a set of feasts that Xerxes hosts for, first of all, all of his friends and all of his leaders from the 127 provinces. If you turned with Cody to the fourth chapter, come back with me to the first chapter. This first party for all of his rulers and provincial governors and his friends, how long do you think it lasted? Anybody? 180 days. That's a party. Six months. And then he has a second feast for all of his people. And that's what we're going to read about. Pick up verse 4. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. Listen to the extreme gluttony of luxury. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Now listen to this. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished drunken fest. That's what it is. That's just all it is. It says, um, on the seventh day, King Xerxes was high in spirits. Maybe we should change that in to on. High on spirits from the wine he had commanded. And he gets this idea. Now he's going to call for Vashti, who's held her own party for the women, because of the type of culture we've already discussed. Why is he calling Vashti out? Well, it tells us that he basically wanted to show his trophy bride to all of his people. I've shown them how generous I am, how great I am. They've seen the wealth of my possessions. Oh, but they haven't seen my wife. He wants just to parade her out for her beauty. She refuses to come. This sets up a problem for Xerxes. 
he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to his counselors, but his counselors are all his party buddies. Verse 16, Memekin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the kings, but also against all the nobles. The queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to the disrespect and discord. Notice how nobly they say they're going to break up our old boy's network. Here's what they did. Men, do not try this at home. (laughs) They counsel him to teach Vashti a lesson, to tell her to never come into his presence again. I'm thinking Vashti thinks that's a pretty good deal. And let's replace her. Let's hold a beauty contest. Miss Persia. Let's get, let's get the most beautiful women from all 127 provinces, and let's bring them here, and let's give them a year of beauty treatments. Then I'll pick the best one, and I'll have my new trophy bride. And there we enter the primary heroine, the character of Esther. In chapter 2, we learn a lot about Esther. She is an orphan, Mordecai. Her cousin, I think, I think her second cousin, if I have it right, adopts her and takes on the responsibility of raising her. Verse 7, Esther was lovely in form and features. In other words, she had the whole package to be Miss Persia. That's the idea here. And so she is one of the 127. Now, she had no choice in this, but she was brought into the harem of Xerxes. Mordecai encourages her to hide the fact that she's a Jew. We don't know why, what his logic is there, but maybe thinking for her protection, it's better just to keep that to herself. It says that they gave her the best of food and and began her 12 months of beauty treatments. That's exactly what it says in the text here, beauty treatments. I don't know what that is, but I'm thinking that's a year in the spa of your choice. I'd like that. I'd really benefit from those kind of beauty treatments, I'm thinking. I'd just like to try the buffet. For a whole year, she goes through this. Finally, she comes in front of uh, the king, and she is the most favored of all. So Esther becomes the queen. Now, it's important that you understand that she was probably in her late teens. Now, if this was our fairy tales, if this was Cinderella, the story would be over. And they lived happily ever after. Cinderella, the orphan that was elevated to queen. But all that's really happened in this case is that the stage has been set for the real intrigue. Mordecai becomes, because of Esther's influence, part of the king's staff, which was a very large group. So it's not like he had the ear of the king. In fact, we're going to find out later that the king hardly knew of Mordecai, except that something had happened very important at this point in the story that will come into play later. He serves near the gate of the palace. He hears two guards plotting Xerxes' death, planning to assassinate him. So Mordecai gets word to the king. Those two guards are hung for treason, and it's all written in the annals of the king. We just set that aside, and we continue on with the story. And then we introduce the villain of the story. His name is Haman. 
The problem with a king like Xerxes is that the kind of people you attract are opportunists, self-serving people. And Haman, if he wasn't the worst, he was the best at it because he became the second most influential person in the land. He had the king's ear. In fact, he had the king's complete trust. Now, Xerxes was not a leader. In fact, chances are Xerxes was a drunk. And when he found somebody else that was willing to take on the administrative stuff, that's good. Let me just do my thing. Let me enjoy my harem. Haman seized that void and became powerful and indispensable. One of the laws that Haman had set up was an acknowledgement of that position of authority. Anyone who saw him as he came was to bow down. The problem is the Jewish people only bow to God. They bow to no man. And so Mordecai, whenever Haman would come by, Mordecai was the one standing looking square at him in the eyes. And that's, of course, all Haman saw. Not everybody bowing, but the one looking at him in the eyes. He hated Mordecai. And he knew Mordecai represented a whole group of people that would never bow to him. He let that get to him. And he had the power to do something about that. A plot sets itself in place. And he approaches Xerxes, maybe at one of his more drunken stupors. And he tells him this, verse 8 of chapter 3. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and do not obey the king's laws. Notice how general he's being here. (laughs) It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He uses, first of all, propaganda, and then he uses a bribe. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And by the way, did I mention that I will also put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business? The same amount that came in each time all 127 provinces sent in their dues. Xerxes says, keep the money, but have your way. We pick up this story. On the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, the nobles, the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Very important. First of all, Xerxes did not write it. That's how out of touch he was, but he allowed his name and his authority to go to it. And the law of the Medes and the Persians states that once the king has declared something as law, nothing can ever change it. That's one of those stupid laws that may have worked when someone like Darius was in power, but doesn't work for someone making vanity laws like Xerxes. The message goes out, verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. (laughs) That's pretty thorough. Destroy, kill, annihilate. If you don't understand this, we'd like them gone. All of them. This is a huge threat to the nation of Israel, potentially to God's plan for the human race. Esther is in her cloistered area, not aware of all these things that are taking place. In the first several verses of chapter 4, Mordecai is able to get word to Esther about what's happening. And then in verse 9, we see Esther's first response. 
Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any a man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, and that is that he be put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. A couple of important things here. One, there's that law of the Medes and Persians kicking in at this point. You can't come into my presence without me summoning you. You'll be killed immediately. The only clause would be if I'm in a good mood and raise my scepter to spare your life. Otherwise, you're dead. And here's what's worse. The king's lost interest in her. It's been 30 days now. He's got a harem full of women. What she's saying to Mordecai is, I risk my own life were I to go to the king to address this. Then we see Mordecai's response and challenge to her. And this has in it the theme verse of the whole book, the critical moment that the story builds to, the big decision. What happens in these moments are the heart of the lesson for us today. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. That's the most famous verse in this book. Now you know the story that led to this moment. Lou Silas gave me this um, great little book by John Ortberg, one of my favorite preachers. He talks about the story of Esther in it, and I thought his paraphrase of what the real message was that Mordecai was trying to get across to her. This is very fatherly. This is how Ortberg puts it. With those few words, Mordecai says to her, Esther, the fate of the whole nation The fate of God's dream to redeem the world in human terms, at least as far as we can see it right now, rests in your hands. You have not been brought to this point in your life for the sake of accumulating an exquisite wardrobe and precious gems and exotic fragrances. You have not been brought to this point in your life to become the most desirable, attractive, applauded woman in the kingdom. You have not been brought to this point in your life for any of the reasons that the king thinks you have. You have been brought to this point to work for justice and to spare your people of great suffering. You have been brought to this point to oppose a man who is vile and evil and supremely powerful. You have a mission, Esther, and your mission matters. You have been brought to this point in your life not for yourself, but to be part of God's plan to redeem the world. So Esther, don't let your success at filling society's view of a woman blind you to what God says your mission really is. Esther, get a clue. So that's his challenge. And then we see Esther's response. This is the moment when Esther grows up, when Esther seizes who she is as God created her to be and the purpose for which God placed her in this position. It's the moment when she grew up from thinking that she had fulfilled a girlhood fantasy and somehow was deserving of it, and this was God's blessing in her life to recognizing 
that God has an eternal purpose that is a whole lot bigger than our personal comfort and privilege. And she rises. The warrior emerges. Verse 15, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The most famous verse is Mordecai's challenge to her. Who knows if you were not put in a position of royalty for such a time as this. But the most powerful statement in this whole book is a young woman knowing very well the risk that was in front of her, saying, I will do my part, and if I die, I die. And then there's the whole rest of the book. Let me just summarize. We win. But you got to read it all. It's amazing what happens. There's amazing plot twists. She goes in. Imagine what's on her mind as she's waiting in that moment. This could be either the end of my life or the beginning of something unbelievably uncomfortable that's way out of my leg. Either way, I can't do this on my own. She proves herself by what you read to be the best politician of all, as it turns out. She has two feasts, and she invites Haman the villain and Xerxes, and through a series of things which you'll read, she reveals herself as a Jewess, and she reveals Haman's plot, and then there's this great little thing about Haman and Mordecai that happens in the middle, which I'm just going to tease you with and say, go read it. It's one of the best parts of the whole story. Xerxes is left, first of all, hanging Haman on the gallows he had built in his backyard for a personal party on which he would kill Mordecai and any other Jews he could get a hold of. Haman's killed on those very gallows. It's pretty cool. Sorry. (laughs) And then Xerxes has an issue because of the law of the Medes and Persians. He said, anybody who hates the Jews can arm yourselves and rise up and kill them on this date. He can't rescind it. He says, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let the Jews arm themselves and and attack first. And the result is God fights on their behalf and gives them this rousing victory. There was a great feast, first of all, in Susa, but then declared wherever Jews were, they were told to celebrate this, but to continue to celebrate it each year in order to commemorate the salvation of the nation through Esther. And that's why the book was written. It was written to commemorate and to tell the story behind the Feast of Purim. All right, so let's just look at this quickly in terms of the big story. How does this fit into the big story? It's actually kind of easy, isn't it? Nation of Israel was at risk. Therefore, God's plan to bless all people of the world through the nation of Israel, to send a Savior, a Messiah through the nation of Israel, all of that was at risk. God delivers, and therefore his plan succeeds. So that's the obvious interjection of this account into the meta story. But one of the things that I can make special note of right here, you also see throughout history and continue to see today, and that is an irrational level of hatred for the Jewish people. 
It's irrational. Throughout history, when you see the kind of people that have just chosen, we're going to hate the Jews, you really can't figure out why. Unless you recognize, as the Apostle Paul said, that our real battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, against principalities in dark places and realms. What you see through the story of Esther and what you see at other places with this fixation to destroy Israel, this hatred for them, is the spiritual enemies of God at work using those in humanity that are given to evil to intervene against God's plan to redeem the world. That's really what you see in Esther as well as you'll ever see anywhere. I think that's really important for us to point out. And it's equally important to point out that God, every step of the way, every opposition, always overcomes what he needs to in order for his plan to succeed. This sovereign God tells us, I will do as I purpose to do, and none will get in my way. No man and no force will stand against my purposes. They will be accomplished. All along the way, we see intrigue, we see threats, but from God's perspective, the plan of redemption is fixed and will not be deterred. You and I cannot get in the way of it. Neither can Satan. That's powerful. We're going to see how important that is next week when we finish this study. Can you believe it? We're going to finish our work through the Old Testament by focusing on Nehemiah and Ezra back in Jerusalem. What lessons can we learn personally And I just want to list four of them for you. Lesson one is that God places us for his purposes, not for our pleasure and privilege. Even as I say that, I'm aware that there are others in pulpits all around America telling you exactly the opposite. That what God wants to do is put you in a position of reward in this life because you deserve it by faith. That the godly life, the reward of it, is health and wealth and privilege. And if you don't have that, then the problem is sin in your life or lack of faith or you just don't know the hidden secrets. You haven't learned to read in between the lines. Everything that we have seen in this story through the Old Testament tells us exactly the opposite. That God puts us where he wants us, whether it's in the walls of government the palaces of state, the gates of the palaces or the gutter or the dungeons of Egypt. He puts us as slaves. He puts us as sovereign. And he does all of it for his purpose, his plan. Here we are in America. We're the most privileged of all nations. I know that you could argue cost of living, and there's a lot of ways to come at this, but the simple fact is that even the line that the government draws today that's the line of poverty for the United States would put that person in the top percent of income earners globally. So those of us that don't fit in that line, we know that we are among the wealthiest. We've created a society that requires all of that wealth to live, but that doesn't mean that we're not privileged nonetheless. And it's so easy for us to think we are deserving That all that we have is for us to use for our good. And if Esther had thought that, if she'd believed that she somehow deserved this and that the end of her life was to enjoy and hold on to this place of privilege, God would never have been able to use her for his purposes. She'd have failed 
and her very reason for existence. And to the degree that you put your well-being and your privileges and your possessions and your vacation and your golf and my golf and your face surgery and your extra luxury car and your third house, to the degree that you put those things before what God's calling you to do. And none of those things are immoral, by the way. Not one of them, unless we worship them. Not one of them are wrong, as long as God gets his first. That's what Esther had to struggle with. And it's important for us to hear it. God puts you exactly where you are for one purpose, his. Not because you deserve it, or not because you've earned it. Second, the other ones are a little easier to take, by the way. That was, that was, the, that was the pounder. That's about as hard as I get, I think. <laughs> Lesson two, God accomplishes his purposes with or without us. It's really critical to see what Mordecai says to Esther. You know, if you don't step up, God's still going to have his way. God's still going to save Israel because we know he's got a purpose. He said he's going to bring us back. The prophets are telling us that's coming. God's going to save Israel, but you're going to be destroyed. You'll miss out. See? And that's really a powerful thing to ponder, that to miss out on God's purpose for our life is in some ways for all of us disaster and destruction because we're made for that purpose. All of us are made at some some way for such a time as this that God calls us to. Lesson three, we can't do our part on our own. We need others to help us. I love that Esther facing this says, would you please get every child of God that you know and together let's fast and pray. That indicates the most sincere form of crying out to God, of humbling ourselves, of admitting our physical weakness by depriving ourselves of very sustenance itself in order to cry out to God. It's a national declaration of utter dependence on Yahweh. And she says, would you do it with me? I'll do it too. And it's out of that strength then I will do my part. And that brings us to lesson four. Joining in on God's purposes is more important than life itself. What did she say? Well, do all that, and then I'll do my part. If I die, I die. See? There's so many links to that idea that we can find in Scripture. The psalmist, your loving kindness is better than life itself. The apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus saying, not only I came to give you abundant life, but here's the path to that life. Take up your cross and follow me. For those who would find their own lives will lose it, but those who lose themselves for my sake win. (laughs) You're the ones that find life. Because it's an eternal weight of glory that is ours, not the temporary positions of privilege. To squander the eternal glory for the moment of privilege is perhaps the greatest disaster of all. 
We flash forward many centuries to the Apostle Paul as he wrote from a prison cell to one of his favorite churches, the church at Philippi, and he's uncharacteristically emotional and sentimental in his writing to these people. He's looking back on his life. He's evaluating what he's done. He's looking both at what God did, the lessons he's learned, and what, if God allows, he still hopes to accomplish. It's in this book where he says, I still want to know Christ, and I haven't yet attained it fully. As long as God allows, I leave what's behind and strain for what lies ahead. But he knew what lay ahead was potential martyrdom. And the verse I want us to say as we wrap up today are his words to these precious fellow believers. Say it with me. I earnestly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but have sufficient courage so that whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted in my body. Paul's earnest expectation and hope must be ours. Now, for some of you, everything I've shared today is completely counterintuitive. Everything about you wants to hold on to what is yours. You want to somehow find your way through a faith that acknowledges God to the point of convenience, but holds on to everything else as the real source of fulfillment for you. And the clear message of our faith is that God alone, the source of all that you possess, is the only true wealth, and that his purposes for you are the only true passionate thing to pursue. And as it turns out, Denying the very things that our dark nature seeks after for life is the only real path to life to the full. Whether by life or by death, may Christ be honored. Let's pray. It's important, Father, we know to remind ourselves of these words not because you ask us to take a path that is meant for our hardship or meant for pain, but the path to the life that you have for us is to relinquish all else and hope only in you. And in losing ourselves, we find life. Father, this is the path of greatest hope. It's the path of greatest joy, and yet everything in us wants to lie to us about it, wants to tell us to hold on to it all. Forgive us, Father, for trying to play both sides of that. May we passionately pursue you. May we recognize that wherever we are right now, you've placed us, you have a mission for us, you have a purpose for us. May we be willing to hear that. Help us to hold so loosely to all that you've given us that we could let it go in a moment if you called us to something greater for your purposes. And in that commitment, bring glory to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.